What did you have for breakfast this morning? That was a really long time ago. And <laughs> I, I think I had bacon and eggs. I had bacon and eggs today. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, no, I clicked the wrong button. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, it was all good. I just launched some software that doesn't need to be launched. Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human. This is a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit by exploring journeys of people from all walks of life. There are often little nuggets of wisdom we can find in another person's story that we can then apply to our own lives. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Peck, who is a mother, a wife, a daughter, a swimmer, and she's a founder, the founder and executive director of Startup Pregnant, which is a media company documenting stories of what it looks like to be a woman in leadership, life and work and all the good stuff. And Sarah, we, I was trying to figure this out. We've crossed paths at some time, I want to say around a decade ago. I don't know if it had to do with Big Omaha or like, I know you from somewhere <laughs> and I can't pinpoint where I know you from, which sounds terrible, but I don't know if it's from social media and like our Twitter circles at the time cross or something. I don't know if you have any recollection of this. <laughs> that is really funny. I mean, that is in a nutshell, the experience of parenthood, right? I'm like, I know you from somewhere, but I don't <laughs> remember where. I have no idea. What? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been around for a while. You know, I maybe it was World Domination Summit. Maybe it was Big Omaha. There was a year in my 20s when I decided to go to as many conferences as humanly possible. So I went to a lot of them. I did go to Big Omaha. So maybe I met you, you there. You did go to Big Omaha. It has I to did. be Big Omaha then. Okay. okay. It's got to be uh, probably around, I don't know, like nine, 10 years, somewhere around that time frame. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. That's got to be it then. Okay. Whew. I feel better now. <laughs> that was a fantastic conference, by the way. You know, I wish it was still around. One of the things I do is uh, I somebody told me this. I didn't come up with it on my own, but I get all the notifications from Twitter and from Facebook, but then I filter them all out of my email client. And what you can do when you finally meet someone, you can search your email inbox for the history that you have with them, and you can find out when you first followed them. I love that. Yeah. So like, that's something I love to do because I can't remember. And another thing I do, I, I meet a lot of people who, and this goes back and forth. I, I will meet people who are super famous and I've been following them for years. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so excited to meet you. Right. And they're like, that's great. Who are you? Right. I've never met you before. Who are you? Yeah. And then sometimes people will meet me and they've followed my work. And my favorite question to ask is, how long have we known each other? And they'll tell you, they'll say, like, for me, they'll be like, oh, I've been following you since you did that blog 12 years ago. And my response is usually, great. I don't have to give you a history of my life. We can sit down and talk about you because you know a lot about me. So let's talk all about you. I love that tip. I gotta, yeah. now I wish I would have done that like years ago. <laughs> so I had it all in my email. But <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think when I, met you or was introduced to you or crossed paths with you, I think it was a big Omaha. You were at the time where, I remember this because it was so unique and I never met anyone doing anything like this, but you were doing like urban planning or architecture or 
I wasn't 100% sure what you were doing, but it was in that general area. And I thought, wow, that's, that's unique. And that's, like I said, nothing that I've been exposed to. I'm really curious, how did you end up like, first of all, was it urban planning, like city planning? And then secondly, like, how did you end up doing that? Oh, that's interesting. Yes, you are correct. Good memory. It's been a minute. So I, I studied environmental psychology when I did my undergraduate work. And I actually was one of those 17 year olds that went to college and said, I want to do landscape architecture. My aunt was a landscape architect and I, one of those 17 year olds, I've never heard of that. That's right. Like, like, I don't think a lot of people know what they want to do when they go to college. And I had, I had an idea. You knew. For some reason or another, I said, I think I want to do landscape architecture. And and then I went to a school that didn't offer that as a major. So I, which makes no sense whatsoever, <laughs> but I went to a small school in Ohio and I, I studied psychology and I studied biology. And then I ended up eventually getting into environmental psychology. So how the design of the environment affects human behavior, like how we can design our spaces around us to influence what we do. And Graduating from college, I had no idea what I was going to do as a job. And the educational landscape can really impress upon people. Well, go get a graduate degree next. That's what you should do. So I went and I got a graduate degree in landscape architecture and urban planning um, immediately after college and then worked for five years in an urban design and landscape architecture field and company out in San Francisco. So that was the first eight years of my life after graduating from college. Wow. And then, I mean, now you're running Startup Pregnant, which is a totally different thing. Yeah. This is what fascinates me is how people, you know, these, these dots, we all connect and we look back and maybe it makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. And I was reading, maybe it was in your bio, but you were born in Germany. Mm -hmm. I was. My parents were- Did you spend any time there or was it, you know, you're born there and then you were gone? Born and gone. Uh, My parents lived there for three and a half years, I believe. They were both engineers and they both worked abroad. They had my older sister, then they had me and they moved when I was six weeks old to Idaho. And then they moved again when I was sometime in my first year to Palo Alto, California. So all your memories are probably in Palo Alto then? Yeah, completely. A hundred percent. I've been to Germany a number of times. I've been back five or six times now and I took German in high school. So I know very little German. But I, I uh, aspire to learn the language. So where did landscape architecture come from? Was this, you were a kid in Palo Alto and you're looking around and you thought, this, is, this landscape is what I want to focus on or something else happened? You know, we had, we had a, a yard in our house growing up and my mom let me every year go and get the plants I wanted and plant. And I had a whole vegetable garden, tomatoes and vines and corn and seeds and squash and pumpkins. And I spent the things I spent the most time doing in high school, aside from my homework was uh, the organic gardening club at school, the garden at my house and swimming. I spent a lot of time swimming. Uh, so when I think back about, you know, 
am I an introvert or an extrovert? I said, well, you know, I spend a lot of time writing, swimming, which is very, you know, solo and gardening. I'm definitely more introverted. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I spent a tremendous amount of time gardening. My, my mom even, uh, we ended up putting a whole irrigation system in and a stone pathway and an arch. And I just, I mean, I don't know what it is about taking seeds, putting them in the ground, I mean, we would stir in, you know, cubic yards of like mushroom compost and then seeing sunflowers grow every day. But I could be out there every day for a couple of hours. It's just so soothing and therapeutic. So I, that's, I wanted to see if I could keep doing that. That was, you know, that's as much as I knew as a 17 year old. I wanted to go to college. I ended up swimming in college and I wanted to learn more about the world around us. Was the, were you, the garden stuff, I'm thinking the, the garden activities, was this like a family thing or was this with your sister too and, and mom and dad or was this more just like your thing and then you invited those in to kind of share it with you? You know, it was mostly my thing. I don't, I, I, th I think I probably invited other people to join me and my siblings had zero interest in joining me out there. I really loved it. Um, mm -hmm. The neighbors could see because it was in our front yard. And so we'd get these postcards from our neighbors and I would say hi to people as they walked by too. I loved doing it, especially on the weekends and as spring came and, and we got to think about what the, the summer season was going to bring. Yeah. And there's all sorts of like interesting little <sighs> snippets of information, like the germination periods, you know, the harvest of... Uh, corn and tomatoes, for example, you want them to be a certain height by the 4th of July. There's like that catchphrase, knee high by the 4th of July. And some things of germination periods of like 62 days, not germination, but like um, maturation days of 62 days and some of 92 or 120. And you just have to time everything. It's like, it's like Gantt charting in a way. <laughs> There's some precision <laughs> but, in there. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's very precise. 62 days. Is it the case where 63 days and you would have a totally different result? Or it's like an average 60 or 70 days. It's really, you know, California is very forgiving in many respects because you have five, six, seven months of growing season. You have a year round growing season, really. And there are other places where, um, like Idaho or Ohio, where you have to plant it after the last frost because if, if the little tiny seedlings freeze over, they're going to die. You have to try again. You have to start a whole new batch of seedlings, but they're going to need at least 90 days without frost. And there's not much time between say the last snow in May and that first really cold day in October. That makes sense. Yeah. I must say, I never, I never, I've, you know, um, have picked out plants and stuff, but I've never been exposed to much of the gardening and stuff. So I, I, I admire, I look across and I see beautiful landscapes of people's houses and stuff. And I always think, I don't know how they know to do that. I, I mean, guess. and now I live in New York City. There's not even, we don't have a backyard, but we do have, I think we have about 60 plants in a side of our apartment. Inside? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you got the landscape going inside. That's beautiful. We have a lot of plants. I mean, my methodology, like for anybody listening that's curious about plants, my methodology is like, buy 20, hope 10 live. Like, you, there's no, there's no reason to. Very fair. <laughs> like, just the way you get plants in your apartment that live is you just keep going. And you can buy them on sale. Like, you can buy them locally. Don't buy, like, exotic plants. Just buy what you see at the grocery store that's growing, you know? And 
<laughs> go with that. So, okay. So you're, you're gardening. You mentioned you were swimming and correct me if I'm wrong, but when you say you were swimming, I mean, at least at this point in your life, you've done some like major swimming. I mean, you swam from what, what is the town? It's like what? Nine miles or something through the San Francisco Bay uh, yeah. to the Alcatraz, the prison. Yeah. I yeah, mean, we that's, did some. yeah, and that's open water swimming. I mean, I love swimming in a pool. Uh, <laughs> um, or I've done, you know, a tiny bit, but nothing like that. I mean, this is, I, I want to get a sense here, like, and you were like, what, 20 time All-American, you're in the national team in college. I mean, this isn't just like swimming. This is swimming. How did you end, how did you end up in this caliber of swimming? You know what I mean? Like, where did that, that passion come from? Yeah, uh, I, I, our parents gave us lessons when we were really little, three or four. And then I was on the local club team. So it's a very California thing to do. It's like beyond swim team because there are pools everywhere and it's sunny a lot of the time. So I, you know, I was on the swim team. Oh, it was so much fun. It, the, you know, season started in March or April and they'd have practice after school and then, June and July, we would have eight meets. There's eight weekends and you'd swim against these other teams and the parents came, like the whole thing was orchestrated by the parents, which is now like, as I'm a parent, I'm like kind of looking forward to, they did the stopwatch timers and they were the referees and they sold all the snacks at the snack stand. And you know, you're just trying to burn off all the energy of these kids. And the meets were from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. on Saturdays. And then there was like a championship meet. Uh, I think it was the first week of August or the last week of July. And I did that. And then I, I started swimming on the team in high school. I didn't swim. So there's like local swim teams. And then there's club swimming, which is pretty pretty intense. There are people who swim me around. I didn't actually do that. I, I, instead, what I did was I played water polo in the fall season and soccer at the same time. So I played on the soccer team and then I did swimming in the spring and then swimming in the summer with our local team, uh, the summer team until I was 18 years old. And I had an amazing technical coach who was from Stanford and just, I don't even know. I think this is where talent comes in. I just kept getting better. And and I was pretty good in high school. Uh, like, was on the varsity team. And then I decided to go to college and I realized this wasn't, you know, premeditated necessarily. I realized that I didn't want to stop swimming. And so I looked at all the colleges I had applied to and I said, okay, well, these that I applied to also have swim teams. I want to still be on swim team in college. And so I went to Denison University in Ohio. They have a really good swim team. I had been talking with their coaches and then I tried out in the fall and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I went to a nationally ranked program, the D3 program. I had never lifted weights before and I'd never done like double practices before. And so here I am fresh into a college campus, like learning the environment of like dorm rooms and being away from home and the new academic calendar. 
And we had 10 practices a week. We lifted and did plyometrics four mornings a week and then six swim practices. And the meet started pretty aggressively by end of September through the next March. I probably, I probably cried every day, um, for the first a hundred days of being, I, I thought I, I didn't think I would make it. And the coach came over to me and he was, he, I was in the slowest lane and I was getting lapped by the other swimmers. And he would come over and he would say, your only job is not to stop. Just don't stop. I couldn't make the intervals, the time intervals. They'd be doing these sets of like 10 100s on the, you know, 110. And I couldn't make it. I was not fast enough. And he said, you know, you, you have a lot of potential, but you are, I mean, you're basically going to get your butt kicked for a while. Um, and it's up to you whether or not you stick it through. And I, I like, have you ever lifted weights? Not really. Not really. Um, People listening, if you ever lifted weights like for the first time, you know that there's this sore feeling where you feel like you can't maybe maybe the best example is when you do squats with weights, you do weighted squats and you're doing everything you can, you're screaming obscenities and you're trying to like stand up again while carrying heavy loads. And then the next day the soreness hits and every time you have to go to the bathroom and sit down, you're like screaming in agony. You're like, No, I just can't sit. I cannot sit. Right. Like it is just so (laughs) painful. So that was my like lived experience while being in a new place with lots of other people. But, um, I, I dropped a lot of time. Uh, I went in, I dropped three seconds in a sprint freestyle event. So that's a lot of time by the end of my uh, freshman year in college. And I ended up making a national cut and I, I, I didn't, I had no idea that that was possible. I like, I get shivers thinking about, I I don't even know if this is okay to say, but I get shivers thinking about my own career because I think about how unbelievably fortunate I was to continue to make steady improvement. I got better every single year and there's something so deeply satisfying and human about like enjoying the appreciation of getting better. And that's not everybody's experience because some people can peak at a younger year. They can peak at 18 or they can peak at 16. Like gymnasts, swimmers are, are of the same. So it was a little bit more rare that I could make such steady improvement. But in my 200 freestyle, I dropped 10 seconds from my high school time over wow. the course of my career. And a 200 free, this is like a teeny tiny sprint event. It's like a huge margin of time dropped. And I did end up, I ended up making the national team all four years. And yeah, 20, I, I got 20 different, um, all Americans. Some of those are on relay teams with other, other amazing swimmers that I got to compete with. Was that like, cause it's, it sounds to me like you, you enjoyed swimming and then kind of experimented with, all right, I want to keep doing this. And you started to kind of continue to up your game, but like you said, it wasn't necessarily premeditated. It was almost like the more you were exposed to it, the more you fell in love with it. Did there come a time where you started to thrive off of that? Like it became more of a integral part of your life and less of a, well, this is fun. I'll keep doing it. Like you were more intentional about it. Hmm. You know, I think that intentionality came when I I chose the college based on continuing to swim. So midway through my senior year of high school. But the thing that's interesting about that question is, is actually uh, that 
to me, there were a couple of moments. One was my junior year of, of college. I just, I had a really rough year. Fell down a flight of stairs, broke my foot, had a bad flu, lost a bunch of weight. A whole bunch of things happened. And at the end of the year, I said, I think I'm done. I think, I think I'll like three years of swimming is enough and had to, had to really recalibrate and ask myself what it is that I wanted to do. And then came back and I'd taken the entire summer off of training, which is unheard of. Like the coach was, you know, not pleased with me. He said, we're going to see if you can make the team again. Um, and I was slow again my senior year. It took me a long time to get back into it. But I'm, I don't know. I, I don't always know how to explain to people what a formative experience that was for developing me as a person. Like the, those years of swimming and being a swimmer taught me more about what is possible as a human being and what effort and achievement and transformation look like. I, I don't know if it's often that you can astonish yourself as a human being. And when you get those moments where you're, it's to me, it's like an out of body experience where you're like, holy moly, I did that. That happened. That was really cool to get to be a part of. Oh, what a great feeling to have. I'm curious where the jump was to the open water swimming. Because I assume this was all, I mean, structured with the school and stuff. So this was all probably in pools and in structured areas. But an, an open water swimming is just straight up like you're just out in a lake or a bay <laughs> or the ocean. I mean, it's just open water, right? So there's, yeah. I mean, was that you tried it once and then it kind of caught on? So after college, I went to graduate school and I actually, I went straight into not swimming. And I remember there were times I'd be walking through Philadelphia and I would stop on the side of the street and I'd be lost in this daydream because so much of my lived experience for the majority of my life revolved around swimming. And then all of a sudden it wasn't in my life. And so my body felt really lost while I was in graduate school and really sad and kind of depressed. And so I would sometimes stop on the side of the road and I would just be lost inside of remembering a, a, a race or a swim that I'd been in two years before or even the last year. Or, you know, fall would be coming and the leaves would be turning and I was supposed to be going back to school and going to practice and I wasn't anymore. And so I swam on my own in graduate school just using the local pool. But after three years, I, I really thought like, well, well, what's this? Like, what does it mean to be an adult now? Like, what do I choose to do? And when I moved to San Francisco, I mean, honestly, so much of work life and everyday life can be really flat and boring and, and repetitive, repetitive. That's exactly right. And so I wanted something that was still a little more, uh, I didn't need adrenaline, right? I wasn't an adrenaline junkie, but just something exciting to do. So I was living in San Francisco. There's a lot of triathlon teams and I decided to try like a, uh, an introductory triathlon, like a small one. And I signed up for that. And I signed up for the escape from Alcatraz swim. Um, that was really fun to do. Oh, I had so much fun. I was, I had never done much open water swimming before. And I put on a wetsuit and I was still, you know, in, in pretty decent shape being a 25 year old and having swum for 22 of my 25 years. And, uh, 
I remember that I was on the boat and there was some like really big beefy guys and they were all talking about, you know, this big swim and what they were going to do. And I asked them, I mean, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but I asked them some pretty novice questions. I was like, where is the starting line? Like, how do we know when we're going to start? And they're like, <laughs> how are you on a boat doing the swim without knowing this? And I asked them like, so what are your recommendations for sighting? Because I just figured I'd drop in. There's 600 people. I would swim with everyone else. Yeah, just follow the code. <laughs> uh, this is a little bit embarrassing to talk about. But they said, so there's a line of kayaks. The kayaks all line up. And um, and you have, everyone's got to get off the boat quickly because the water temperature is super cold. So you can't have a whole bunch of people sitting in 58 degree water. It's just not a great 58 idea. 58 degrees? <laughs> yes, it's really cold. That and, is, <laughs> is that safe? <laughs> not, I mean, it's fine. That They have an hour cutoff. So... Anybody that's still in the water after an hour, they, they take out. And they've got okay. lines of kayaks, like, basically guiding the herd, making sure that nobody's getting lost. The tides are pretty impressive. And said, so, okay, there's the – and the way they do it is they, they blast um, a whistle every six seconds, and they've got two gates off the boat. And every six seconds, someone's jumping in the water. So they get everyone off the boats right away. You can't – you don't walk up there and be like, maybe I want to get in or I don't want – you know, just, like, get in the water. Hold your goggles so you don't lose them. Jump in. Swim over to the kayaks. Once everyone's off the boat, they blow the air horn, and then you go. And it's kind of hard to sight because when you're inside the um, – the ocean is a bit rocky. This is the bay, but it's a bit rocky. So you can't actually see because your eyes are down on the horizontal level of the bay. And so you have to lift your head up, but I, I can do that. I, that's what I did in water polo. Like I'm, I can swim head up and look and sight really easily. I've been trained and you have to look up and you have to sight. And it's a little bit tricky because you have to know whether or not the tide is going in or out. Because if the tide is going in one direction, it's going to pull you. So you're going to want to see where you're going and then aim. Like if 12 o'clock is where you're going. You're aiming for 10 and uh, what is that? One, two, three. Yeah. 1030. <laughs> you're aiming for like 1030. You're just aiming 30 degrees off to the left if the tide's going to pull you there. So I jumped in and I swam up. I'm very competitive when it comes to swimming, by the way. Um, so I... <laughs> <laughs> with others or just yourself? Sounds yes. like now it's with others. <laughs> yes. With Why not? Winning is fun. So... <laughs> You know, I had a bunch of beefy dudes tell me that I uh, that I should probably get my head on straight before I did this. So I just asked them really, you know, how do you sight? Where are we starting? How will we know when we begin? And I went to the front of the kayak line and I saw, I scoped out my competition and I looked at where we were going to go and I said, okay, I know how long this is. Um, and then I just started swimming. And, well, you know, when the air horn went off, I started swimming. Uh, and... uh they, within about, I want to say like three to five minutes, there wasn't anyone around me. And I kind of freaked out because I thought maybe I was going in the completely wrong direction. I was like, well, I'm getting swept out to the ocean. Like, <laughs> it's a valid concern. Be, yeah, wanna, it's a big bay. <laughs> but I kept looking to where, where I was sighting. And I said, you know what? Just put your head down and swim. And the middle third of the swim is really interesting because uh, you nothing is getting closer to you. Like nothing is really changing. The beginning third of the swim, you're moving quickly away from the island so you can side off of it. And towards the end, you are getting really close to something so you can see it. But the middle third, and I was like, I don't know, just put your head down and count. You've done this. So I put my head down, took really long strokes, counted, kept sighting. And then at the end, the tide started pulling faster and just swept me right in through the gate. I swam all the way in and I came out and... um 
I was like, cool. How is this? And people were like, that was really fast. And I came in 11th overall out of all 600 people. And first in my age group. And then I watched these. Wait, this was your first time? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I watched the big beefy dudes come out like, you know, 10 minutes later. And I was like, eh, eh. it was very satisfying. <laughs> it was so, I was so sorry. I haven't told that story to like anyone, but uh, it was, it was very pleasing and it really hooked me. That's, how, that's one of the reasons why I kept doing all these open water swims. Yeah. I was going to say, that's where it just clicked for me. When you said you were 11 out of 600 in your first time, like, well, this is where the continued open water swimming came from because why wouldn't you? It was fun. <laughs> Especially with that I competitive think, nature. I think I also got pretty lucky. I timed the tides, right? You know, I, I, I aimed out towards the way they told me to and the tide swept me right in at the end. And a lot of people got stuck, you know, further away from the opening. So I'm not going to say that it was all my doing. I, like having 20 years of competitive swimming experience under your belt is going to make it easier for you to do something like this. Well, and I I think, I mean, tides, I think it was your doing. I see a little bit of the precision from gardening in there where like, you're not just competitive swimming, but you're paying attention to the environment and you're calibrating it to increase or optimize your swimming. I have been known to be analytical. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I I don't want to say smart swimming, but you know what I mean? You weren't just jumping in the open water and saying, what the hell go for it. You were, you were, Paying attention and kind of, you know, optimizing it. That's awesome. Yeah. So how many times have you swam the Alcatraz? How long is that? It's a mile and a half. Okay. Um, and usually takes anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour with with really good tides. So that day I did it in 33 minutes, which was super fast. Uh, the tides were and everything were great. And the other times I've done it in 40, other times I've done it in 50 minutes. Tide swimming is so different than swimming in a pool because sometimes something will be red on your back. I've done it nine times. Once I did it naked, which you probably have read about, I, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, but uh, then I did two other swims that were one was six miles long. No, I did three other swims. One was six miles, one was nine miles. And then one was a relay with a bunch of friends across the bay, which I think... I think that's also nine miles, but it was relay in and out of a boat. So I probably swam three or so miles of it. Wow. I, I have read that you swam the the route naked. Now, this was to raise money for charity, right? Just yeah. for everyone out there who's wondering what we're talking about. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you can yeah. do whatever you want. <laughs> it was very cold. I will say it was very cold. And Was it 58 degrees that day? Yeah, it was somewhere between 58 and 61. I timed it. I did it um, middle of September with where the water is the warmest. So That's as warm as the water gets in San Francisco? Yeah, so it'll go Oof. between like 51 and 61 annually. Okay. Yeah, and I've been in there without a wetsuit in the 51 to 53, and that, like, your bones get pretty cold, and there's, like, some um, automatic hyperventilating that happens, so... When doing those swims, I went with the, there's the Dolphin Club and the South End Rowing Club. And if you get in the water at that temperature, you have to manually override your lungs. Because what's going to happen is you get in, you feel a huge contraction of your muscles and you start going <laughs> like it's just really cold and you have to have controlled breathing and start to just really go. Otherwise, you might succumb to an involuntary panic attack. It's not actually you doing the hyperventilate. Oh, I mean, it is. It's your body. Yeah. But yeah, it's pretty cold. Um, but then 58 degrees 
to 60, 58 to 61 degrees doesn't give the same bone chilling temperature. There's a lot of difference between these temperatures. And once you're up to 61 degrees, it's just shocking to the system when you get in. But this, like, this is really fascinating to me. The entire experience of getting into the water is a sensory experience that you interpret with your mind. And if you can interpret it with your mind, this is what I would do for myself. If you can interpret with your mind, like, hey, there's a tremendous amount of buzzing on my skin and my brain is making a lot of noise and that noise and will diminish within two minutes. You can almost, it's a little bit dissociative, but you can almost separate from it and just recognize what's going on. And then two minutes later, you feel fine. It's wild. That is wild. I kind of get that though. I'm reminded I enjoy swimming laps. Um, I should preface this with I am, I don't even want to call myself a swimmer now, uh, talking to you, but I do <laughs> enjoy swimming laps. If you get in the water, you're a swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> and whenever I get in the pool, the park district pool, indoor pool, and it's guys you do in the winter, so it's cold out. Um, the water sometimes is cold and I get in and I just dread because I like to get my whole head wet before I put my goggles on because I find it easier when my hair is all wet. So I know I need to submerge my entire head and body to put my goggles on, then I'll start moving. I know exactly what it's going to feel like. I do it every time. And I know, I told myself, you have to do it. And I just, I'm better now, but I stand there for a moment. I just dread it. Because yeah. like you said, I'm anticipating and I, now I'm thinking about your technique. I wonder if I can just separate myself from that. I mean, we're talking like a two, not even a two second dip here, but I'm reminded of maybe applying this tip now. It's so true. And and just to be fair for everybody listening, I'm, I'm now 36 years old and I'm a wuss when it comes to getting in the water. Like I like even going to the ocean where it's like 70 degrees. I'm like, it's so cold. And my husband laughs, <laughs> so hard. He's like, come on on you of all people. And I'm like, I don't want to get my shoulders wet. So, you know, we, we acclimate to our repeated habits. And I think the interesting thing here, like, first of all, if it doesn't bother you, then it doesn't matter. But if you wanted to change, the interesting thing here is that you are the experiencer and the participator in prolonging your own dread. Like you I thought about that. Choose that. Yeah. And especially if you've already, like in this example, I've done this how many times? So I even know the outcome. I mean, it's a controlled environment, right? Like the pool temperature is, if it's cold, it's just as cold as it was last time. There's no <laughs> external factors here. Right. But it's such a mental, you know, battle. And honestly, like, it's, it's almost silly to talk about because it's like, I guess if that's the hardest thing I have to worry about in that moment, I guess I'm, I'm very fortunate that, you know, my scariest thing at that moment is I don't want to dip my head underwater in a park district indoor pool. Do you just jump in? Like, are you the kind of person that just goes no, straight for no, it? No, no, oh. I, I, I just slide in. But no, yeah, exactly. I slide in. So that only, you know, my top half is still dry. I'm very tall. I'm like six foot three. Yeah. So when you're, you know, you're in the three feet water. So I, over half of me is still dry. And then I, that's when I have to submerge my whole. So that makes it worse. I wonder if jumping in. Is there a deep end? Can you go to the other end and like jump in? Yeah, yeah, I could. Okay. (laughs) I think I, I also find it helpful. Like there's being super present. You know, you could be super present and analytical about all the experiences and the sensations, like, you know, your feet on the cold tile and what it feels like and the, and counting before you get in. Like, I'm always going to get in if I count to four, one, two, three, four, I'm in and I'm under. But there is something really powerful about 
distracting yourself that I think is uh, maybe overlooked sometimes in the mindfulness community. Like our minds are really powerful. So if you decided that you wanted to think about the television show that you watched last night or how blueberries taste, you could do that if you wanted to. You could form a habit where you say, I walk 10 steps to the pool, I jump in, I duck and I go. And the entire time I'm thinking about blueberry sundays. And you wouldn't notice. The- oh, I love that. I mean, I've done that in other situations in life, completely distracted myself, either intentionally or not. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I never thought about that. Okay. I, I have intentionally a, conf- I have a confession myself. to make, which is embarrassing, but I'm old enough to not really be embarrassed by too many things anymore. But whenever I'm really scared in when I only in open water swimming, interestingly, uh, because the San Francisco Bay does have great white sharks and... I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a breeding ground for great white sharks. Just stay away or... That's... I mean, obviously, you tell yourself that. They don't like eating humans here because there's so many other fish. Okay. Right? Obviously. So... Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah. No. Um, so, the the geography of the bay is pretty interesting because it's a really deep... Um, uh, cave valley. Like what's the name of a valley under water, but it's 365 feet deep at the opening of the San Francisco Bay. And a, a bay is this cool ecosystem because it's coming in and out and it's where the ocean meets all of the runoff from all of the land. So there's like all of this really good soil and marine material. And that's where all the little fish live and all of the like, just all of the good stuff that bigger animals want to eat. So it's this huge, beautiful ecosystem. And so, yeah, the sharks swim in and eat and then they leave. So sometimes, you know, when you're in the very middle of that swim and you're, you know, three quarters of a mile from the rock and you're three quarters of a mile from the land. And the only way that you can get home is by swimming with your own arms. And if you get a cramp, you're SOL. I would distract myself by thinking of the most powerful thing I could think of that could occupy my mind. Do you care to guess what that is? (laughs) I mean, it could be anything. The most powerful thing. I, I don't even know where to start. Yeah. Space. No, Planets. no. It's really much more. I said it was embarrassing. So I think about sex. I apologize to all your listeners. But I would think about like the dreamiest dates that I've been on and like the best sexual experiences I have had because it is so captivating to the mental landscape, right? Oh. Like there's, it is so... It, that makes total sense. Me. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean now by powerful, captivating. captivating. Yeah, I mean... Let's be honest, that's something your mind is not going to turn over. You know, you're going to be too dim fully. Yeah. Correct. So t- if oh. I got scared of sharks, my my mental game would be to think about, and I would try to think about anything to distract myself. And I realized that that was the thing I could think about that would really, I would then be swimming and thinking about that instead. And I'm like, this is much more delightful than thinking about being eaten by a shark. <laughs> All of a sudden you're like, yeah, I cannot wait to go swimming in the bay again. <laughs> totally, totally. Oh my goodness. So how in the world did you get from swimming in the bay with sharks to this startup pregnant? I'm, <laughs> I'm the, yeah. I mean I, I I mean obviously you have two children so um you experienced pregnancy and became a mother which uh, as a father I mean I understand the parent side of it. I don't understand yeah. obviously the being the mother side of it but um 
Yeah, I, I'm looking at our trajectory here, and so we're we're swimming in the open bay. But nowadays, we are helping women with, uh, you know, like I said at the beginning, kind of life in general, but especially this idea of you know being in business while pregnant or or while a parent. Hmm. Where did that come from? Yeah, so in a in a shorter kind of nutshell, I worked in architecture for five years, but while I was there, I, I helped uh, build a magazine. I launched an online publication. I got our firm involved in social media and communication strategy, and I ended up being a communication specialist within that firm. And then after I left the company, I started my own communications agency, like a freelance consulting business where I would help people with marketing, getting online. I started teaching, doing public speaking and writing. I had a blog. Uh, I've now had it for 10 years. Congratulations. And thanks. I'm shocked. And then also, you know, you have that record of who you were 10 years ago and you're like, wow, I do That's not know if part. I degree, agree with myself yeah. though. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so writing, I was writing a blog and I built some online courses and moved to New York City from San Francisco and we got married. Met my husband, got married and worked at a, a startup here in Manhattan teaching people how to, how to code and how to learn online. So I was helping to manage a suite of courses and build online education materials. And it was there at the startup that I got pregnant. So, well, no, it was technically in a bedroom with my husband, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but while I was working at the just startup, to clarify. just to clarify, <laughs> it wasn't, that, it wasn't like a, a fertility clinic or startup, but <laughs> I, um, my husband and I talked about getting pregnant and I had actually talked about it with the CEO. He was a good friend of mine. He still is a good friend of mine. And I, and I helped write the maternity leave, the parental leave policy. And I was there, I was there pregnant and I was there uh, in my maternity leave and for a bit afterwards. And when I was pregnant and working at a startup, I was like, this is insane. I don't feel like very many people understand what it takes to be pregnant and to be a woman in tech. I don't feel very supported, even though I have an amazing team. They just do not understand what I'm going through. And I was seeking to connect with lots more women who are going through this. This this navigating of the path of being entering into your 30s, your late 20s and your 30s, and just the whole world of like, what does it look like to grow a business, to raise a family? What do the next 10 years of my career look like? And I started a blog and a podcast called Startup Pregnant, um, which is now now a company that I am building. How did it turn into the company? I mean, was that not the intention? I mean, the intention was always to help people. Yeah. But was it sort of, it became bigger than you ever imagined it would type situation? Yes. A couple of different things. So I, the, the reason I started in the first place was I actually pitched a book proposal to an agency in New York City, and they really liked the concept of Startup Pregnant. And we went back and forth for a while on the storytelling and the arc. Like, what is the messaging? And we realized that... Uh, there's a saying in, in memoir writing and also in, in, you know, book writing in general, the more miserable you are, the more I can sell. Like, the more <laughs> you have gone through the worst of it, like, the better of a book it'll be. I'm well, laughing because it's, it's absolutely true. It's so true. And so, <laughs> like, as a consumer, <laughs> that's right. You want, we want wild. We want, you know, we want the people who go on these crazy journeys. We want the, like, the, the, 
just anyways. So my story was actually not that miserable. Girl works at a startup. Girl gets pregnant. It's not like it's not that compelling. So we went back and forth and we talked about adding more voices to the book. Who could I interview? Like what trends could I identify? So I started interviewing people and in interviewing them said, okay, first of all, I cannot have these conversations privately. I'll put these somewhere that people can listen. I started transcribing them, putting them on a blog. So, oh, I should start a podcast. And you know, at the time I had my little one at home and I said, I can't start another side project. I have zero extra hours. So why don't I try to get sponsors for this podcast? I got sponsors for the podcast before we launched. And then I looked at my husband and I said, oh boy, I have a thing that's making money. It looks like a business and smells like a business. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've accidentally made a business, which was pretty cool. It wasn't the original intent, but I think that's the shape a lot of projects take. They evolve and they expand to take the space and the format. Like, And I, th- I think this is really important. A lot of people, you know, look back and say, oh, I knew it all along. And that can be true for some people. But I want to be super honest that I did not know this all along and that I thought it was a book and then I thought it was a podcast and then it was a business. And then I asked myself how it could become a business and still do what I wanted it to do. And how are you enjoying it now? Oh, it's really fun. We have a community of, I think we're at six or 700 people right now um, in our online. We have a free online community on Facebook and there's just some wicked smart female founders and entrepreneurs in there and they trade resources and they share and they support each other. And then we have a paid private community with 28 people in there this year. And it's, uh, it's called the wise women's council. And we go, we work together for a year. We have sponsors for the podcast and we've done 154 episodes so far. Congrats. Thanks. Thank you. I know that that takes a lot of work. (laughs) It has taken some time. Um, We've been doing it for three years and I'm at a point where I'm now exploring. It's interesting because uh, the world right now, like the economy and coronavirus have changed a lot of things, but I'm still exploring. I want to hire more writers and build out the team a little bit, but I want to do so, you know, with cautious optimism over the next year. How exciting. That's awesome. I love the whole concept. I, I, like I said, I'm biased in that being a fellow parent once you become a parent, I mean, obviously, for me, change perspective and everything. And one of the things I noticed is that th- there is kind of that divide, whether intentionally or not, but of just, I mean, work, life, and especially, you know, mothers, but just between people who have experience with children or have children and see it through that lens than people who don't, or, you know, in the family side too. So I love when people like yourself are bringing light to this yeah. and just making it yeah, more, not normal, but I don't know. I, I still think like, you know what I think COVID, this whole coronavirus thing has helped so much with, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned that, you know, bath times come up for the kids and they might start screaming or appearing, you know, on the podcast. And, you know, my, first of all, I would never care anyway, but especially, you know, during this time, it's like, oh, I don't care. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we are living, you know, you got to do what you got to do, but I've seen that everywhere. Like I'm on, you know, talking with folks on video chat and you see this on the late night shows and just everyone, you know, realizes that like it's real life right now. Yeah. And that means that there's kids and cats and family and and, and just chaos. 
And I hope that that sticks around. I mean, I hope we all get back to normal, but I hope that like the <laughs> chaos is expected, I guess. Yeah. I think, I think you hit on something that I, I feel really passionate about this, this pseudo divide between people who have children and don't have children. It and, pisses me off. It's well, pretty bluntly. Yes. It, and it's, it's not real. It's actually really harmful because children shouldn't be invisible. If we make children invisible, I think it, it's, um, a sign of like a dysfunctioning society. I think it's really problematic. And I, I don't wish coronavirus, the COVID situation on anyone, but I do think that we need to talk about the fact that children, are people. And the reason that it's a very simple reason, it's several of them, why everyone should care about children, whether you have them or not. And that's because you were a child. This everyone is a child. Everyone becomes an old person in theory, we hope. The older part is not necessarily true. But when you become older, it is the children of this generation that will be supporting the economy, paying the taxes to support you. Like our interconnectedness as a society is directly related to how we raise children and hiding them or pretending that women should take care of them for free is really insane. Um, so I, yeah, I'm really glad. I don't, I don't like what's happening with COVID because so much of this is falling on women. There's so much, there's so much out there that's happening where, like in the academic fields, women are taking more of the childcare burden. And so they're not submitting papers and men are on average submitting twice oh. as many papers right now because a lot of male academics have wives at home who are still taking care of the children. And so two years from now, what's going to happen when people are up for tenure and the male academics have submitted eight papers in the last two years and the female academics haven't been able to submit a single paper. And you're comparing these people and you're like, well, we have to give tenure to the person who is more productive. So there's a lot of problems happening right now and systemic failures. But I don't know if we come out of this and we are able to recognize that children are people, you were a child, and that our current world of work doesn't actually support us in society, any of us, then those will be some beneficial outcomes from a really frustrating situation. I love that you brought up that that point about we were all children once because I feel like that's so often missed when, like you said, I never even thought about children being invisible. I love this. Now I'm ruminating on this, but yeah. this idea that like you were a child, I was a child, everyone was a child. And if you are more aware of that and understand what if people ignored you or what if people didn't give you opportunities or what if people didn't think about you in this situation or think about how you fit in to all of this, you know, where would you have gone? Who would you have become? You know, and I feel like it is all of our responsibilities, whether we have children or not. Like you said, we're all interconnected. Like we should at least be aware of. Yeah. And um, what's the word? Uh, pushing people forward. I'm going to say proponents of. Yeah. (laughs) I'm at a loss for words. Proponents. Yeah. Advocates. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Advocates. Yeah. And like we should all be lifting up. That's what I want. We should all be lifting up the children. Because like you said, I mean, was it Michael Jackson that had the song that they're the future? Yeah. Someone had a song yeah. about the future, yeah. the future, but yeah, I love that. I love what you said. Right. We're not, it, you know, the, the, the argument that like, well, I don't want to pay, you're the one who chose to have children. I don't want to pay for your children is such a, uh, uh, like not thought out argument because, you, because you were a child, right? Every single person gets this benefit. Yeah. And it's such an individualistic, I think one of the things this COVID coronavirus time has taught me too is the true 
I, there are some shitty things happening right now. People are losing jobs and dying and all that. But just putting that aside for a split second, the unity that this has shown us, like I keep stepping back. And I mean, you look at it from, I just saw the astronauts in the International Space Station did a video for John Krasinski's Some Good News YouTube videos he's been doing. And I, they, you know, they look at the earth and I think, Right now on this planet, the dominant species is just literally uniting together, doing whatever they can to survive. And like, that's beautiful in some ways because it, it brings us back to like, we are all just together in this. Like, and what you just said, you know, this view people have to me is so individualistic. Like, I don't want to have to deal with the effects of you having had a child. I didn't choose to have that child. I didn't, why well, didn't tell you to have that child? Why do you, you know? wait a second. I mean, and you, you said so many of the reasons, like they are the future. First of all, like if we all just stop having children, then someone else is taking over the planet. Also, also, you know, and I think about this. So I was raised with some Republican parents and I was Republican for a while um, in my thinking. This is more than a decade ago because of so much of the changes in the political parties. And then I really identified with the Democratic leanings and I, I, I can understand so many different sides of this conversation. And so my argument to people who have a more economic or business background is that children are also your future employees and your future employers and they're your future taxpayers in a society. So it's not like whatever the investment is that we put into them, whether it's universal childcare at a young age, um, we open up so much more of society and so much more of productive society. Like the benefits are are documented across the board. These, these kinds of support systems are not things that just benefit the person receiving them. They benefit everyone. Um, and there's one other thing, but I'm forgetting it. What was I going to, maybe, maybe I'll remember it and we'll come back to it. It's late and my children have been with me all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, I think it's bath time is coming up. So I want to make sure you get to enjoy the evening. Um, with the kids and then hopefully you get a break. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm going to remember this, whatever it, the other point that I wanted to make after we get off the call, but that's, that's typical for right now. I'm actually shocked that I made it this long being able to chat. Like I think lucidly, who knows? Oh my gosh. Totally <laughs> lucidly. Yes. You're a superwoman. You oh. are, you know, that swimming made you into swimming in open water with sharks has made you a superwoman. Yeah. Well, we're doing the best we can. We're pretty fortunate over here. I mean, we do live in New York City, but my husband and I have really flexible jobs and we can work from home. And he is more than an equal partner in so many ways. I mean, he's he's the one who puts them to bed most nights and um, we really divide up the hours of childcare and how we arrange it. And we always make all the decisions together. And... Um, I know that's not true for everyone out there. It's uh, one of the reasons why I'm passionate about what I do. I think, I think I remembered the other point. Yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, was I wish say, everyone could see the look on your face. <laughs> oh my God. I just got back to it. Um, I, I, well, I, to tie these two things together, like we have so much more, uh, so much further to go when it comes to, to women and, and, to men, because the patriarchy hurts all of us, right? 
women are are in, uh, affected by this so much, but men also are affected in terms of loneliness and depression and not being able to talk about their feelings and not having enough friends and support system and, you know, dying of things like heart disease and suicide when they get to be in their 30s and 40s and 50s. So we have so much further to go. But the point I was going to make earlier is um, the other thing, the other reason it's beneficial to unlock uh, universal childcare and paid leave and support systems and all sorts of robust things that we can do to support children is that women are 50% of the economy. And we cannot be competitive or innovative as a society, if we say, you know what, we're just going to have half of us. And here's my competitive nature. It's like, uh, uh, get me in there because I'm going to make something interesting and you're going to make something interesting. And so part of this also is an investment in women's futures. And when you look at that and you realize like, I now will have a child that's smarter and a female that can work if they want to, and a husband that can work if they want to, or, you know, a single mom that can work if they want to, single dad, whatever the family structure looks like. It's just... It is like a, a quadruple win. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank oh, you. I'm glad you remember that point. I love that. <laughs> it's my soapbox. <laughs> no, you know what? Fine. If that's your soapbox, I'm getting up there with you. Yes. I love it. Because we need more of that. Great. We really do. And it, sometimes I feel like some of this stuff, it's just, it has to be like, you know, said over and over and over and over for some of us to get this. So I'm totally fine with, Yeah. you know. I agree. All right. I agree. We have well, to say it over and over again. Agree. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sarah, for, for taking the time. I loved our conversation and this, I just love what you're up to. And I'm, I'm really happy we figured out how we crossed paths. <laughs> originally. <Yeah. laughs> Thanks so much for having me and asking all of these questions. It's, you know, conversations that last a full hour are a luxury right now. <laughs> so I'm really grateful to do it. We're going to jump off and um, we've got bath time. I told my older one we would make cookies. So we're going to make a batch of cookies. Oh, yeah. what a perfect thing before bedtime. Oh, I'm, I, we're going to make 48 cookies and I will probably eat half the batch. But I was going to say, this is just as much for mom and dad as it oh, is for Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then after they get in bed, I I don't even know what we're going to do tonight. We'll probably stay up till the like late hour of 8.30 or 9 p.m. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a whole other conversation waiting about, about being parents that we're yeah. not going to get into right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Thank oh, you. they're waiting for you. You better get in there. Did you hear that? Did you hear it? <laughs> in, yeah. In the distance, yeah. I told you. I was like they're gonna start screaming by six o'clock that is the bath time scream that is the like i don't want so. <laughs> at least they have cookies to look for it oh i gotta make them yeah oh yeah, yeah. So. thanks awesome. this is great yes thank you so much let me know if i can ever help with anything um like i said i i you know but watch what you're doing and i think it's great so oh, thanks got a lot in the works but it's so slowly right and you know moving so slowly because i'm mostly working like six to nine a.m sometimes six to ten depending on my husband's schedule i don't know what's <laughs> happening <laughs> oh i love it <laughs> i gotta go out there all right all right have Talk fun to you later. bye thank you for listening to this episode of we're only human since you've reached the end of this episode i would love for you to send me an email at we're only human two at gmail.com. 
That's we're only human two, the number two, at gmail.com. Send me an email and tell me what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.